we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. Thank you very much. Now, I know what you're thinking, especially those of you who are in the first few rows. Anna or Emma hit me in the eye. I know, listen, I know it's a distraction, so in order just to, for you to get over the black eye this morning, um, this is what happens when you train in combat sports. I mean, from time to time, you get an elbow in the eye. No big deal. No big deal, right? So there it is. There's my disclaimer this morning, and we can, we can move on. Well, listen, I'm Danny Panter, uh, the I have the privilege of being the preaching pastor and the shepherd in this congregation out of the First Baptist family. If you're new with us, we're so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us in this room or online. We really want to know that you're with us this morning. So if you would honor us by going to fbcsa.org connect, you can do it right on your phone right now or right at home and just drop us a line. Let us know that you're here and, and we promise to make contact with you at a later time, but you're, we're glad that you're here with us today. Let me also remind you that um, a part of worship is us continuing to give faithfully uh, to this church family as God leads us to minister to this city, and there are multiple ways you can do that. Some of you will write a check or whatever and put it in a little envelope, and you can drop that off in the little bins as you exit this morning, or you can do it online at fbcsa.org slash give. But please continue to give faithfully as an act of worship this morning. Last week, we began our journey through Mark chapter 1 through chapter 3. That's where we're going to be the next 13 weeks beginning last week. And last week we began this gospel. Now it's called a gospel. It literally means good news. But remember last week I said a gospel is not a historical textbook. A gospel is not even intended to be a biography. Although there's a lot of historical and biographical information about Jesus and the apostles in this gospel and all the gospels. The nature of a gospel is a herald. It's good tidings. It's a proclamation that, that something is happening that's going to change everything. And that's exactly what Mark presents to us. He's likely the first gospel ever written. And he is saying, something has happened. The good news, Jesus, the Son of God. And he's going to continue that, obviously, throughout the next 16 chapters to be that herald to us about who Jesus is and the kingdom of God that he is ushering in, for Christ is the nearness of God to us, God with us. Remember? It's his name, Emmanuel, God with us. So that's where we are. Uh, we are in verses 9 through 15 this morning. And this morning, um, we're going to hit um, three sections of Jesus's life very quickly. And um, we're talking about Four verses for Jesus' baptism, two verses for Jesus in the wilderness. When all the other gospels eclipse Mark by verses and verses and verses, Mark keeps it very short, very tight. He excludes a lot of detail, but he packs a punch. 
So let's stand together. We're going to read verses 9 through 15 with one another and get into this text together. So let's read. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, uh, bless your word. Bless your word. Help us to understand it and respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now there's something significant obviously happening right off the bat and it's hard to capture this in our modern translations because we segment everything with headings and, and titles. And so we have verses 1 through 8, right? And that's a different section. And then we have verses 9 through 15. But when this was originally written, they didn't have headings and subsections and divisions. They, verse 8 was right before verse 9. They didn't have numbers, by the way. Uh, they didn't have uh, verses distinguished at all. That didn't happen until much, 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 much later. And so we had these two sentences, verse 8 and verse 9, right next to each other. And there is a significant contrast that Mark intends for us to understand. So you remember in verse 8, what does John declare? Oh, there is someone coming after me that is far greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. And you know, I baptize with water, but the one who is coming, the one, Jesus the Son, will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now we contrast that with verse 9. Jesus, coming out of Nazareth in Galilee, he is baptized by John. Do we understand what's happening? Do we see the contrast? I mean, Mark is saying in in verse 8, Jesus, even in verse 1, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the good news. John says, I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. He's going to baptize you in a brand new way. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. When you come to receive baptism from Jesus, he's going to baptize you in an identity-changing way by putting the Holy Spirit in you when you come to him. Uh, Jesus is going to be ushering in a kingdom of new sons and daughters. He is the son and daughter maker. And yet Jesus, in verse 9, comes to John and says, I want you to baptize me. Y'all remember what John said? If we look laterally across the Gospels, do y'all remember what John said? No, 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 no. I can't do this. There's no way I can baptize you, right? I can't even touch your sandals. You want me to baptize you? Because John understood verse 8. Those words came out of his mouth. He understood that. And Jesus, you want me to baptize you? 
The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. Turn back to God, and you show that by way of baptism and water. You demonstrate that you were wayward, and now you're turning towards God once again. And John is saying, you want me to do that for you? Significant. And Mark wants to draw our attention to the person and mission of Jesus in just that verse alone. Do you understand what Jesus is doing? Jesus is humbly receiving John's baptism of repentance. Jesus doesn't need to repent. And mind you, Jesus didn't come to John with some kind of disclaimer, right? Something like a, I don't know, a sign on his chest. By the way, I'm the son of God. I've never sinned a day in my life. I'm eternally righteous. I'm just doing this for your sake, just to show you what it's all about. No. For all sense and purposes, everyone who was around the Jordan, around John at the time, and they watched this man, Jesus, they just made the assumption that Jesus, like them, was broken and sinful and worthy of God's judgment, and that he was letting everyone know that he was turning back to God. No disclaimer like that. Just Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal righteous one, walks to John and is baptized by John. Perfect submission. Perfect submission. Jesus perfectly submits to the Father. Listen to this. In that moment, Jesus is perfectly submitting to the Father on our behalf. Not just a demonstration. Not just a model. That's why he says, in order to fulfill all righteousness, I have, to pre- I have to present perfect submission. As the person, the Son of Man, and the Son of God, I will perfect, perfectly submit to the Father in this act of baptism of repentance. Extraordinary. When was the last time you demonstrated perfect submission? I mean, think of that for a moment. When's the last time you demonstrated perfect submission in your own life? Uh, whether it's before God or before anyone else. I can tell you the answer is never. None of us have perfectly submitted to anyone in our life. There, even in our relationship with God, there's a, there's a part of that brokenness in us that still resists and wants to go our own way, right? Right? And even when we might submit to someone in authority over us, sometimes there's that begrudging attitude in us, gosh, I wish I didn't have to do this. And yet Jesus perfectly submits to the Father and receives baptism of repentance when we have never demonstrated perfect submission or perfect repentance. He becomes that for us. He becomes our perfect submission, our perfect repentance, even though he never sinned once. From Adam, from Adam, both corporately and personally, we have only known rebellion. All of us, both corporately and our own choosing. And we have chosen a thousand other things to say yes to other than God but not Jesus. 
and yet he perfectly submits and is baptized by John in these three verses. It's extraordinary what Jesus is doing. Up to this point, we've only heard about Jesus indirectly, right? Just these, the early verses in chapter 1. But now, in verse 9 and following, we get to see the action, the real person of Jesus at work, and it's extraordinary. In verse 10, it says this, As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. We have the emergence, literally the emergence out of the water of the perfect Son. The perfect Son of God and the perfect Son of Man. And the text tells us that the heavens split apart and God descends like a dove. The Holy Spirit descends and lights upon Jesus. An extraordinary, extraordinary uh, event happening in that moment after Jesus' baptism. And likely, everyone sees or hears something in some capacity. Um, they see something crazy happening, whether they understood everything that was happening or everyone heard everything in, in exactly the way that we read it now. We don't know, but they saw something extraordinary happen. But God rends the heavens and descends upon the sun. And that takes us back um, to Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. Let me read these verses to you. And just kind of as best you can, in your own imagination, kind of put yourself in the Jordan River when Jesus is being baptized. And likely, many of you there would have memorized these verses that I'm about to read. And you witness this crazy rendering, rending of the heavens and the Spirit of God descending. Now let me read these verses. Isaiah 64, verses. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 4. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. Your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. Talking about the exodus and the giving of the law. Remember that whole scene. The mountain was covered in smoke and fire. Verse 4, for since the world began, no eye has heard, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. And in this case, we have Jesus in a moment who's going to say, echoing the words of John, the kingdom is at hand. You have waited for the kingdom of God to come. It is here, and God opens the heavens and descends upon the sun. It's incredible. Not even Moses or any of the other prophets could come before the Father without being consecrated. God didn't come down to anyone without them undergoing significant consecration, um, purifying themselves. And yet we find as Jesus the Son emerges, God affirms who he is as the person, the, the eternal Son of God, by descending upon Jesus. Pretty cool scene. Pretty cool scene. And so both visually and verbally, the Father accomplishes two things in that moment. First, as I just mentioned, he affirms the eternal identity of the Son by saying, this is my Son. 
It wasn't a title given to Jesus at that moment because he underwent baptism or, or he reached the right age, but it was, he was eternally the Son. He is eternally the Son, and the Father is declaring that both visually by descending, rending the heavens and come down, and verbally by saying, this is my Son. He also affirms the mission of Jesus, which Jesus has humbly accepted, right? By perfectly submitting to the Father and receiving the baptism of repentance. Perfect submission. For no one else could complete anything like that. No one could perfectly submit. Only the Son of God, the Son of Man, can do that. And then the Scripture says that the Spirit descends like a dove. I mentioned this last week. If you remember last week, most of the gospel, but not all the gospels, but Mark begins with the beginning of the gospel, right? Um, John says, in the beginning was the Word. Both of those kind of point back to Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke the universe into existence and began that work of creation, right? Well, we kind of have that same imagery here. You remember in Genesis 1, chapter 2, what does the Spirit do? Descends and hovers over the deep. We have a very clear imagery here that echoes what God did in Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit descends, and Mark's not explicit here, but this is where God is affirming the mission of the Son. And the mission of the Son is what? To remake the sons and daughters of God in His image. To bring restoration to a broken creation, to be a recreator. And that actually began at his incarnation. We came as a little baby. But it's reaffirmed here with the Spirit. The Spirit who came over and hovered over the waters in creation and now has hovered over the sun. We're doing a recreative work through this one from Galilee who perfectly submitted through baptism of repentance. God declares, you are my dearly loved son, talking about the person. God says, and you bring me great joy, affirming Jesus' mission, what he is doing. Uh, last week I said throughout this series, we're going to be talking about three things in these first three chapters. We're going to be talking about the person of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the method of Jesus how he's going to go about fulfilling his kingdom or his mission. And here we have both the first two clearly in view. Who he is and his mission. In just a handful of verses. And Marcus, to the point, and he wants us to capture that. He wants us to capture that. He wants us to be in awe of the nature of the person of Christ That He is indeed the very incarnate Son of God. He is, he, he is fully God. Through Him all things were created and all things are for Him and through Him. That's what, that's what Mark's trying to communicate from verse 1 to verse 15 or throughout the rest of the book that this is the Son. So by the time 
we get to um, Peter's declaration that this is the Christ or that centurion's declaration near the end of, of, of chapter 15 where he says, this man must be the Son of God. We're saying, yes. He is indeed the Son of God. And his mission is being fulfilled through his perfect submission. Now, Quickly, I'm going to talk about the next few verses in the wilderness. There's a lot of stuff going on in these two verses too, but I just want to mention a few so we can get to the last two verses in verses 14 through 15. Jesus perfectly submits to John in the baptism of repentance on our behalf. That's his mission. That's part of his mission. And now we have Jesus under the leadership and the drivenness of the Holy Spirit. Here is a perfect example of submission, right? Again, that the Son of Man is driven by the Spirit of God, where? Into the wilderness. He personally and perfectly takes on the cosmic struggle between God and spiritual darkness that invaded all of creation in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, that's what these first two verses are saying to us. That's what, that's what Mark is trying to communicate. He perfectly submitted in baptism, and the Spirit of God led him to the wilderness because a part of the mission of Jesus was not only to be our baptism, but also to enter into our brokenness, right? Uh, he was to take on that cosmic struggle and, and feel as the Son of Man the weight of the temptation and the twistedness of our flesh. He entered in that willingly into the wilderness. Forty days being tempted um, by that cosmic enemy of the goodness of God, Satan, the devil. And that's what Mark is trying to say. The Son willingly submitted by being led by the Spirit to take on every temptation and brokenness that we have experienced, and yet He did not sin. So you see, Jesus not only had to, had to be our perfect baptism and perfect repentance, perfect submission, but He also had to be our perfect righteousness. And that's what he demonstrates in this little preamble statement. This is something else that I think is important for us. There are a whole lot of other details in the other Gospels about actually what goes down in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan, how Jesus uses the Word of God, that sword of the Spirit, to a lot of practical things for us. But Mark doesn't do that. He just says he goes to the wilderness, he's tempted for 40 days, or he's tempted by the, uh, the, the, the enemy, and he's administered or ministered to by angels, and he's with the wild beasts. Not in necessarily that order. Um, but the implication here is, is that Jesus' suffering under the brokenness of a sinful and twisted world lasted much longer than 40 days. It lasted all the way to his crucifixion, right? Jesus became our righteousness by living a life of faithfulness to God as while he was carrying all the temptation that we also face and resisting at every turn. But that was required in order for us to know Christ's righteousness. 
And we see that in these few verses. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus resisted sin to the point of his death. And none of us have ever experienced that. And lastly, the last two verses of this section, 14 and 15, says this. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. So he went back home where he preached God's good news. And what's the good news? That the time promised by God has come at last. That's the good news. The good news up to this point, which becomes more and more focused. In fact, that's, what, that's the point of these verses, is that the good news is becoming very laser-focused now on a person. Right? The fulfillment of the promise of God of restoration of his people, develop, having a new covenant uh, with the people of Israel and now beyond to the whole Gentile world is going to be laser focused upon the person of Christ. But Jesus doesn't say that there. But what he is saying is God is fulfilling his promise right now. The kingdom of God is very near. He's, gonna, he's doing what he said he's going to do. And that begins and ends with me. He doesn't say that explicitly, but he demonstrates that very, very clearly. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, just like I said earlier. So when we see see those words at hand or nearness of God or nearness of the kingdom, Mark says that nearness is Jesus. The kingdom of God is restored through Christ, by Christ. He is the the gatekeeper and the gate. He is the door. He is the way. This This is so important for us. Just in closing. This is so important for us to wrestle with as believers in this generation This is not a gospel message that says, can I just remind you that God loves you so much just the way you are? And I've come to let you know that. That's not the message that we have from Jesus. And Pastor Chris has been saying this ever since he's been here. He's been saying, you know what the first words of Jesus' ministry were? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And that's what Jesus is asking us to reckon with. Jesus is saying, I I want you to reckon with God's kingdom right now. He says, listen, I I want you to understand you've got to get a grip on who you are, that you are part of a wicked generation that has rebelled against God, turned away from God. You and all about you is sinful and broken and need of restoration. You're not fine just the way you are. You gotta turn from that. You gotta move from that. Your heart's gotta change. Everything about you's gotta change. And 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 uh, Jesus is saying, you've got to get ready for that. I mean, he's echoing the message of John, right? You, you've got to get ready for that. And Jesus says, it's happening now. Through me. Through me. Uh, Jesus says, you've got to come to grips with who I am. And so the, the, the message of repentance, we've really got to wrestle with because it, it, it forces us to think about who we are, that we've got to turn. 
uh, that we've, we've got to turn back to God, that we've been away from God. We've, we've gone another way. And it also forces us to reckon with and come to grips with who Jesus is. We can't just make Jesus who we want him to be, right? We can't just say, Jesus is like this. He, this is the way he is. This is the way he looks. I mean, God, uh, God through Mark and Jesus is saying, no, you, you've got to reckon with me as a person, that I'm the son of God, that I am the one who perfectly submits on your behalf. I'm the one who is living a righteous life as the son of man, carrying the weight of a broken and sinful world on your behalf so that you can know my righteousness. We've got to reckon with that. And listen, we, and this is not necessarily anything new, but even among Christendom, those who would call themselves followers of Jesus still are trying to figure out. The statistics are crazy, and I'm not going to list them right now, but the statistics are kind of crazy. The number of believers who would still say, you know, I don't think it really matters who you go to as long as you're sincere. Right? I, I, I think, yeah, Jesus might be the Son of God. But I don't know if we can be sure. Sure. That's all over the place. But Mark won't let us get away with that. Jesus won't let us get away with that. The way Mark presents Christ is is that you've got to wrestle with Jesus. You've got to get to a grip on who Jesus is. And you've got to get a grip on who you are. That you are desperate for the person and mission of Jesus. That's what's happening here when Jesus begins his ministry. John chapter 10, verse 9, this is what I talked about in the kids' sermon, is Jesus uses that beautiful analogy of being a shepherd, right? And he, he uses a lot of different words, but he gets to that place where he says, I am the, not a, but I am the gate. Anyone who comes through me will be safe. The heart of it, that's, that's the message here of Mark. Is that Jesus is the gate. He is the way. And our world is desperate to hear that good news. Jesus didn't have to be baptized, but he was. Jesus didn't have to enter into our broken wilderness, but he did. And Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, but he did. Through extraordinary act of humble submission to the Father and the mission of God. In order to fulfill my righteousness in order to fulfill your righteousness. Church, let's hold on to that message. Will you hold on to that message? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, the truth, the way, and the life. We rejoice in his perfect submission. We rejoice in his perfect righteousness as he entered the wilderness of our brokenness. 
and we rejoice in the proclamation that your kingdom is near because of your son. Help us to hold on to those truths in a world that would say everything else. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.